Charlie Kerr had his chance last week, and I was like, I got to at least intro with that. And I apologize to all of you who this morning I greeted and pretended like I didn't know I was preaching. You can have your heart attack stop now because I was just being sarcastic with you. I didn't know I was sharing this morning. A couple of months ago, uh, I was getting ready for youth group on a particular Wednesday, and I decided to go to Chipotle to be able to get an evening meal before heading off to do our senior high program here at the church. So I go into Chipotle, if you've never been there, you go in there and you order a burrito and you eat it. That's the way things work there. So I go in there and I do just that and I enjoy it. It's savory, it's nice, it's wonderful. And I finish my burrito and I remember walking out to my car, I put the key in the, in the door, open it up, get inside, put the key in the ignition, turn it, and I started listening to the sound of silence. Except it wasn't the song by Simon and Garfunkel. It was a uh, no sound at all, basically. If you've ever had a day where your car might have looked like something like this or sounded like something like this, then you can relate to my situation. Now, my car, this is not my car, for those of you who are wondering. I have a Honda Accord outside. It's wonderful. It runs great. But that day, it didn't. That day, it didn't work out. So we had to get it towed up to Pep Boys and get some help to be able to get it fixed. And it's good now, but... In that day, I remember thinking, you know, I have a Honda Accord, it's a reliable car, you know, it's going to run forever, and just, I was very surprised by the fact that it didn't. And, you know, I, was, came, I came away from that experience thinking about my confidence, because of the fact that I was putting so much confidence in this reliability of this car, and it didn't matter how much confidence I had, as soon as I put my key in to be able to start the car, it didn't matter how much I hoped for the car to start, it wasn't going to start because the starter was gone, as well as the battery, so double trouble in that situation. And yet, that idea of not having, or the idea of focusing on what we put our confidence in is what I want to take a look at this morning. The title for our sermon this morning, next slide please, the title for our sermon is A Case for Christian Confidence. A Case for Christian Confidence. So we're going to be taking a look at the book of Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 3. And as you get ready to turn there, I invite you to be able to pray with me and for me as we start to be able to dive into God's word together this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, all the blessings that it is to us and the way that you are able to instruct us for righteous living through it. I pray that your word would go forth with power and with wisdom and with understanding this day and that we would be able to apply it to our lives this week and that we might be able to live for you in all that we say and all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. So again, like I said, we are in Philippians chapter 3 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 11. And Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, though. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. For I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, as I said this morning, our title is A Case for Christian Confidence, and this is a really powerful text, and I'm really excited to be able to dive into it. And we're going to have several points in our outline this morning. And the first one that I want to draw your attention to is a critical contrast. It's main point number one on your outlines this morning is a critical contrast. And I heard a quote recently. If you're not an outline person, if you don't like points, that's fine. I'm in the same boat. But I heard it said that, that an outline or points are kind of like bookshelves for your thoughts in a sermon. So if you don't like it, think about it like that because it helps you to be able to organize and prioritize what's being said in the passage. Now, before we get into that, this is a different book than this one we're studying. Quick trivia, does anybody remember the book that we're studying that we just started a new series in? Corinthians, all right, very good. Pastor Sean would be very pleased with us. Well done, well done. If you said Nehemiah, you would have been close, but Corinthians is what we have been studying. Now, Philippians is a different book. It was written to a church in Philippi. Philippi was a city that is located uh, just inland from the northern edge of the Aegean Sea. If you're wondering where is that, think modern-day Greece in the northeastern part in that area. And Philippi was a Roman colony that was set up there, and it was a prominent city in the region of Macedonia. And there was also a very important highway that was running between east and west there. And Paul was writing this letter to the church there, from prison in Rome, most likely. So that's the context for these things. But the first thing I want to draw you to, your attention to this morning is a critical contrast. Because Paul, he jumps in and he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. If you're somebody that wants to get encouraged, Philippians is a great book for that. It is filled with encouragements all throughout the books for how we can rejoice in the Lord and do that. So that's not a problem. It's something very similar that he's writing throughout the rest of the book. But then he jumps into verse 2 and things change. And he, said, he gives them a warning. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if you're looking for something loving to say to a parent, loved one, or friend, those are not things that you want to be able to say to them. If you were to call them a dog or evil, those are not something we want to be able to convey to somebody. So obviously, Paul is looking at this group of people through a very negative viewpoint. And you might say, okay, well, who are these people? Now, the group of people that Paul was referring to is most likely the Judaizers. And if you're somebody that's studied Galatians a lot and is familiar with scripture history, you might be like, oh, yeah, no, I got that. And if you don't know who they are, you might be raising your hand saying, excuse me, who, who are those people. So the Judaizers was a group of Jews, not all Jewish people, but it was a group of Jews who were claiming to be Christians. And what they were doing was that they were basically getting the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus and saying, we're so glad you came, you're coming to faith in Jesus, but before you put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, we need you to become Jewish first. You need to be able to start to adhere to the work of uh, the Jewish traditions of, the, of circumcision, of the law and the prophets, the teaching of Moses, all the things that were uh, accumulated in the Jewish tradition, you have to adhere to those things before you can come to Christ. Now for you and I, this probably isn't a, sim a situation that you can relate to because many of you, when you think about the time when you came to know Jesus, you might have thought, well, there was nobody there saying that, and that's a good thing. But I want to be able to maybe put it in context and perspective for us because what they were doing was putting a stumbling block for people who wanted to come to faith. If I were to come up here this morning and give a gospel invitation and somebody were to come down afterwards and say, this is a, such a wonderful message that you've given to us, I want to put my life in, in Jesus Christ and be able to, to come to know him as my Lord and Savior. If I were to say something like, that's great, but before you do that, you need to wear a suit 
when you come to church because otherwise God doesn't love you because Jesus only loves saints in good packaging. He doesn't accept sinners in anything else. Or if you're a lady, wear your Sunday best and nice Sunday dress. And if you're not wearing that, then God's not going to accept you. Now, you might chuckle and be like, oh, that's kind of absurd. But that's a similar idea in terms of thinking before you come to Jesus, meet our prerequisite before you do so. Or if we were to say something else, you might be able to say, that's great if you are somebody who wants to be able to come to faith in Jesus. But before you do, why don't you clean up the sin in your life? Because Jesus doesn't deal with sinners. He deals with clean people. You see the connection? Or if I were to say, my background is Irish, and it was last weekend was St. Patty's Day, we heard from Charlie Curry, and he did a great job. But if I were to say, that's wonderful that you came to faith in Jesus, but before you join the church or come to faith and basically become a Christian, you have to adhere to all of the Irish traditions. And that would be absurd. But what these people were doing was doing a similar thing in laying a stumbling block and hindering people from coming to the full gospel because they were saying, meet our requirements before you meet God's requirements. And that's why Paul is addressing these people with such strong language. He's saying that they are dogs because they are worthless in their teaching. Don't think like a cute little pet. A lot of you might have dogs or cats or pets. If you were called a dog in the ancient Near East, that was not a compliment. That was something that was degrading because it was an animal of low value. Not only that, but he says that they're evil because of what they're teaching in their doctrine is something that's not kind of close to the truth is something that's opposed to the gospel and evil in its essence. And then Paul mocks them saying that they mutilate the flesh because that's what they're putting their pride in, the sign of circumcision, which is something that was key to the law of Moses. And ultimately, all these things put together, this group of people, the Judaizers, were putting their confidence in their flesh. They were putting it, their confidence in works-based righteousness so that when they stand before God, it's based off of what they did, not who they are in Jesus. And that's why Paul addresses these people with such strong terms. And we're going to dive in even more about this group of people later on. But then he, in verse 3, pivots and says, I'm going to talk about a different group of people. Because he says this in verse 3, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory, not in works-based righteousness, and, but in Jesus Christ, and, or in Jesus Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, some commentators and some translations have called this saying basically these people were the true circumcision because these people were putting their faith and their hope in basically a ritual in terms of their culture at the time and their works-based salvation and yet what Paul is calling them out on is the fact that being Jewish is not about being one outwardly and about being able to show that to the world in the epistle to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says this. For Paul, when he writes, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical only. Now that's what the Judaizers were taking it to mean. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's drawing a distinction between these two. And this is a very crucial contrast because these things are completely against one another. They're two different camps. And it's, as we read through Philippians, it's easy for us to be able to maybe gloss over it and skip this. But there is a huge difference between the two. I mentioned Galatians earlier. And, and in Galatians chapter, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, I want you to take that and either write that in your notes or next to this passage. Galatians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Because I was doing, as I was doing research for this passage, this is Paul addressing a similar topic with some of the strongest words that I've ever seen him use in some of the epistles. Galatians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, or chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 says this. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. But then he says this, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Those are strong words because these people, again, they're not putting their hope in God's love, in God's grace, in the faith of God, but they're putting their hope in their works-based righteousness. And what Paul is saying is, if that's fine, if you want to do that, you can do that. But when you do that and you choose to be able to put your hope for standing before God based on what you do, you are cutting yourself off from God. You are severing, separating, cutting yourself off from God's grace and God's love when you start to be able to do that and you take that as your ultimate hope for righteousness. And he's drawing a contrast because these two choices are mutually exclusive. Now what does that mean? You might say, what does that mean? That means that in choosing one, you choose to be able to deny the other. In choosing one, you say no to the other. A lot of times in our culture today, a lot of times we like to be able to think that we can do everything and that we can have all things work together and that that we don't have to say no to anything. But if I, were to, if I were to give you a hypothetical situation, if you got a day off from school or from work for your family, and you wanted to go on a day trip, and, you want, and half your family wanted to go to Boston, and half your family wanted to go to Washington, D.C., they're in opposite directions. If you start driving towards Boston, what are you driving away from? Washington, D.C., right? And if you flip it around and you start driving towards Washington, what are you driving away from? Boston, that's right. And I mention this because in choosing to be able to put our hope in Jesus Christ, we choose to be able to move away from putting our hope in works-based righteousness based off of what we do. But when we choose to be able to say, I want to stand before God based off of my own righteousness, we're walking away from Jesus Christ. And that is a key contrast that we must not overlook. And yet as we talk about that Most of us here are probably not Jewish. If you are, great. But most of us here in this church are probably not from a Jewish background. This was something that was going to trip up the Jewish believers at the time because for many of them they were coming from Jewish backgrounds. So when they were instructing Gentile believers to be able to come to faith, they were doing it based off of what they know. And yet, if I were to take take a guess, most of us are probably not tempted to return to the ways of Judaism. You might be, but most of us might not be tempted in that way because that's not our context. That's not our background. But if I were to ask the question in our lives, what is Christ contrasted with in your life? Then it opens up a whole new page of applications. Because in the same way that Jesus was contrasted and mutually exclusive to all of the works-based righteousness of Judaism, Jesus still today does not settle for anything less in our life than priority number one. He doesn't settle for anything less than priority number one. When it comes to our lives, we can have other things in our lives. We can have other good things, but there's other evil things in our life. But the number one priority in our life must be Jesus Christ. And when that isn't the case, there's a problem. Pastor Sean in times past has said that when you choose to be able to run towards sin, you're moving away from God. And the same is true when you move, away from, when you move towards God, you're moving away from sin. But think about it for your life. Because if Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and you're a Christian then maybe there's times in your life where you say, you know what, Jesus is my Savior, my Lord, and I love that, but there's some times that I wish that I could be the boss of my life again. I wish there would be some times where I wouldn't have to be able to put myself under God's authority and be able to do things the way I want to be able to do it. Or maybe there's a background that you came from. Maybe you have somebody that, somebody that has a, a radical testimony or not, but you maybe think, you know, I sometimes miss those momentary pleasures of sin from when I was, bef- when I was not a Christian in my past. 
and you're tempted not to return to Jewish faith, but to maybe the sins of your background, to be able to go back to those things. What is Christ contrasted with in your life? Because that same idea of Christ being number one and nothing less is true for us here today. But I love what Paul does with all these things. What Paul does, he's writing to the Philippians. It doesn't sound like this group of people is there in the church. It sounds like it's elsewhere, and he's telling them to beware, to be careful about something. Now, if you were to tell a friend of yours or a kid or your own child, hey, watch out for this hypothetical situation, and when you come to it, here's the right choice that you need to be able to make. Now, if you're human, what are you also going to think in the back of your mind? If I don't listen to them, what's going to happen then? Why do I have to go this way? Why is this so much better? What happens if I choose to do a little rebellion? And Paul, anticipating this, moves on and says, you know what, I'm not just going to say, beware, don't do that, that's bad. He walks through and addresses this mentality of workspace salvation as well. And that brings us to our second major point this morning. Our second major point in your outline this morning is the counterfeit confidence of the flesh. The counterfeit confidence of the flesh. Something counterfeit looks genuine, looks like it's going to be promising and it's going to be accurate, but it's not quite the case, like the arm and hammer behind me and the arm and axe or hatchet behind me as well. But what Paul does is he anticipates that these people are going to have trouble with this. He anticipates that, you know what, they're not just going to say, okay, that's the bad choice, I'm not going to do that, and I'm just going to always choose the right and good path. Because these Christians in Galatia and elsewhere have been so hindered and been so harbored in their love for God because of this wrongful teaching. So he says, why don't we take a look at this and see how it would apply to my life. Verse 4, Paul says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's what Paul is saying there. He's boasting in his pride. He's a little bit prideful in this, but he does have a pretty great background. So what he's saying is, if I wanted to stand before God based off of my own, uh, my own righteousness, Paul says, let me give you my resume. For some of us, you might be able to say, well, I'm kind of a good person, kind of not. But Paul's saying, if I wanted to really follow this way of thinking and be able to stand before God based off of my own righteousness, I have a pretty great list of things that would benefit me before God. And he starts and he, he goes in verses 4 through 6 and he walks through some of them. The first thing he says is he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Levitic, Leviticus 12.30, check, he already got that done. He was circumcised, that he was walking in accordance to the, the Mosaic law from the, from the foundation of their, of their instruction. The base thing that you're supposed to be able to do if you were male and you were Jewish, he already met that requirement. First thing on a spiritual resume, checked. But not only that, he was a Benjaminite. Now, for some of us, you might be able to think, oh man, Benjamin, that's like somewhere in there. It's one of the tribes of Israel. And some of you probably could recite all 12 tribes from memory. But for us, we think of Benjamin, we just think of it as something in past history. But for Paul, it was his, it was his background. It was kind of where he's from. It's, it's kind of his, uh, his tribal background. There was a pride associated with that. You see, the tribe of Benjamin, when you look back to the beginning of it, Benjamin was the, was the youngest son of Israel's favorite wife. So he was close in terms of his value to his parents. Not only that, but when there was a division in the Old Testament, you had the divided monarchy, and you had Israel in the north, and what was the name of the one in the south? Judah, right. And there was one tribe that was stayed loyal to the house of David. You know which one that was? Benjamin. 
Not only that, but their tribal allotment was on the border of Jerusalem. And it was that being the epicenter of Judaism in that time. So if you're close to Jerusalem, you're close to a very, very important religious site for the Jewish faith. Now Paul, he's saying, you know, he has a pride in terms of his people and where he's at. Now, again, for us, we might be able to say, if I were to say, where are you from? You should say New Jersey. And when I first moved here a couple years ago, I was, a, I was new here and stuff. But when people say, what do you like about New Jersey? Now I can say, man, we have a lot of things. We have bagels. We have good Italian food. We have the Jersey Shore. You have NYC not far away. You have uh, upstate New York. You have Philadelphia, if you want to go there, and a bunch of other different places and stuff that you can go to. And there's a lot of great things. By the way, when you come and visit our state, you don't even have to pump your own gas. Sounds great. Why don't you come here? But there's things associated with New Jersey that we have pride because we have a pride in terms of who we are and where we come from. And that's similar to Paul in his day. And yet he goes on and says, not only that, but I'm also a Hebrew of Hebrews. When I first read over that, I was like, okay, you're just stating the obvious. Yeah, big deal. You're a Hebrew of Hebrews. But what he's saying is I am ethnically Jewish from ethnically Jewish parents. Now, if you think about Timothy, when he was at Ephesus, his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. So in terms of ethnic purity, he was mixed. But if you wanted to judge Paul based off of ethnic purity in his background, he's saying that he is from a pure upbringing of Jewish background. And you might say, okay, well, what's the value in that? Have you ever remembered the, the sermons that we might have had when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well? What do most people talk about when they talk about Jews and Samaritans? They don't get along. They don't hang out together. There was enmity between them. If you wanted to travel as a Jew from Jerusalem up to Galilee, you would go outside and around of that place because you so despise that people group. And Paul is saying that my background is pure. My ethnic background is pure. In the same way that you might have pride in terms of your background, whether you're from uh, East Asia background, whether you're from India, or if you're from Norwegian stock, or if you're Italian or wherever. I can't list every place on the globe, but you have a pride in terms of your ethnic background. I joke sometimes that when I was applying for the job here, I'm not Norwegian, and there was somebody else who was applying for the job who was. His last name was Ingvaldsen. It would have been a perfect Norwegian name. And I remember when I was applying for the job, I was like, you know what? I really hope this goes well because I'm not Norwegian, and that's quite obvious, and he sounded great. But by God's grace, I came here. But again, we joke about that and stuff, but we're able to have a pride in terms of who we are and where we come from. And that's what Paul has in this passage, and he's stating for those people who would think about having a pride in his ethnic background as well. But then he goes on in terms of his spiritual resume and says, let's look at the more important things, the more important things, some of the more influential things that make him stand out more than others. As to obedience under the law, he says he was a Pharisee. Now, when you hear the word Pharisee, what comes to your mind? What kind of person? Usually negative, usually negative. Usually hypocrite, right? Possibly because Jesus said things like some of these things, you know. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Not a good statement. Let's move on to another place. Matthew 23, 27. For you are like whitewashed tombs. Again, not something to say to a loved one. You are a whitewashed tomb, which appears outward beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, Jesus is not wrong in saying these things. There was, there was hypocrisy that was prevalent throughout the Pharisaical system. But if you were a Jewish person looking to be able to be close to God and to be holy and religious and spiritual, you would become a Pharisee. 
Because the Pharisees did things like they would hold to a strict interpretation of the Old Testament law. They would not only do that, but they also held in addition to that the oral tradition that surrounded it as well. They would tithe, they would give, give uh, funds to the temple and the treasury, they would pray publicly, and they would interpret the matters of the law. So when you see a lot of times Jesus talking to these people, they're like, well, we have a question from, with, for you from the, from the Bible. What did so-and-so mean when this happened in the Old Testament? Because they knew it very well. And from a Jewish perspective, if you wanted to be close to God and you wanted to be able to live for God well, one of the things you could become was a Pharisee. So it's a positive point in his background if you were to look at it from a Jewish perspective. But then the next two is when Paul starts to be able to pull away. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now if you're somebody that's like, what's zeal? Zeal is like passion, it's like energy. And I don't care how passionate you are, how energetic you might have or be in your personality, Paul was probably better than any of us. You might be able to serve wholeheartedly in a children's ministry or on Monday nights or in another aspect of the church, or you might be coming here on Sunday mornings and singing passionately with all of your being because you are so passionate and zealous for God. But Paul was so zealous for the traditions of his ancestors that he was willing to be able to persecute all the people in the area of Jerusalem. You go to the book of Acts and you look at the stoning of Stephen, who was standing there approving of the execution. Saul, who later was renamed Paul. Not only that, he was so zealous that he didn't just persecute in the local area, he exhausted his ability to be able to persecute the church in Jerusalem. Everybody else was either in hiding or elsewhere. And at that point he said, you know what, this isn't enough for me. I'm going to get letters to give me legal permission to persecute Christians, this new religious group, in Damascus. That would be like us saying, hey, here in New Jersey, we've exhausted the opportunity for evangelism and church planning and doing everything here in northern New Jersey, and we're going to move up to upstate New York or to New England because we have exhausted our ability to be able to serve God here. That's how passionate Paul was in terms of his zeal, his passion for God and for the traditions of his ancestors. And when it comes to my life or to a lot of our lives, we can't compare to that level of passion and he concludes his whole list by saying that as to righteousness under the law he was blameless not before God but from a Jewish perspective if you were going to be legalistic and look at your works-based salvation under the law Paul would have been golden so Paul he's going through all this to be able to teach the Philippians because he's saying if anybody wanted to follow this false teaching it should be me he would have so much benefit. He had a huge career in terms of his background before he came to Christ, and yet he says all these things in the next couple passages, in the next couple verses, he says that they're not worth it. And he walks through all these things, and they're counterfeit hope for righteousness, but that's the way we think of things. If you were to talk to most people in your workplace or in your school or maybe other parents that you know that are close in uh, friendship to your kids or something like that, when most people think about their standing before God, what do they base it on? A big scale of good deeds and bad deeds. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're good. You go to heaven. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, well, then sorry, you go to hell. That's the way most people think about it in terms of our context. And I remember one time I was sharing the gospel with a friend, or not a friend, but a guy that I met in Michigan. This was before I went to college after high school. And I remember sharing the gospel with him, and this was a great guy. This was a guy who was always looking to be able to help out the poor, always respectful. He stayed away from the stereotypical sins of the world. He one time biked all the way across the city to be able to pick up a sleeping bag for a homeless man, biked back without a car, and gave it to the homeless man because he so wanted to help him. That's an admirable thing to do. So when I was talking to this guy, 
It's kind of tough to be able to convince somebody that they're evil unless you hold to God's law. But the problem is when we look at our works-based salvation, we look at ourselves as being relatively good. And we look at whether or not enough good deeds can cover up our evil deeds. And the only problem with that is you never address the evil that's still there. You sweep it under the rug. You try to cover it up with more good works, but it is never dealt with. That's why when it comes to us being righteous before God, it is impossible because you and I can do a lot of good things in this life, but we can never be perfect and undo the evil in our past. I don't care how great your life is or how evil your life is, we are all imperfect before God. And Paul, in writing to the Romans, in chapter 3, verse 20, another great verse to be able to write down, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Whose sight? God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In the gospel, in Romans, the most complete account of the gospel in the New Testament, you see Paul writing saying nobody's going to be justified according to the law. And if you're from a Jewish perspective and you're saying, well, maybe this is something that Paul's adding to Scripture and it's not quite true before God, well, guess where he got it from? Psalm 14, 2 and 3 and Isaiah 64, 6. Psalm 14, 2 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek out after God, but yet they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. And there's a little phrase at the end for maybe that one person that's like, thinking of the exception to the rule, like, well, maybe there's one person. The end of the verse says, not even one. Not even one person is righteous before God. As Isaiah affirms, we have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like like the wind, take us away. And the realization that Paul is trying to bring his readers to is this that the things that initially would be points for piety in the Judaizers' minds are actually poisonous preventions that keep them from God. The very thing that they are trusting to make themselves righteous before God is the thing that is keeping them from God in the first place. And like I said, most of us do not have the same type of righteous life that Paul might have. If we were to look at our life, we might be a pretty good person. Most people here are wonderful people in this church. But at the same time, nobody's perfect. And a lot of times we love to be able to come to Jesus and to be able to say, Lord, would you save me from all my sins? Would you cleanse me of all my my unrighteousness? But somewhere along the the way, maybe days, months, or years later, we start to be able to trust in what we've done because God starts to be able to clean us up. And we start to be able to say, maybe I'm a good person because I stay away from the stereotypical sins of the world. Maybe because I don't swear I'm a pretty good person. Maybe because uh, I've been faithful to God in serving ministry or I know the scriptures and the doctrines of the church well. And these are all good things that God wants us to be able to do. But they are not our basis for our hope in righteousness. Because the gospel is still true for us as believers, just as it is for unbelievers. The only reason that we are right in standing before God is because of Jesus Christ. And that as we are saints in Jesus Christ and believers in him, we are still on God's production line to become perfected and glorified with him one day. We're getting better, we're getting closer, but it's still by God's grace in our lives. And he's going to one day glorify us and make us perfect in him. But at the end of this little section, you might be thinking, okay, well then everything that we do is worthless. So what do we do, Jason? Are you saying that we should just come up here and just be able to never try to be able to live for God? No. Again, what I'm trying to say is what are we putting our confidence in? And let's do what Paul did. 
And that brings us to our third point in our sermon this morning. Our third point, main point number three, the Christian's confidence in Christ. Main point number three, the Christian's confidence in Christ. Look with me at verse seven. Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is saying that everything in his former life, everything on that big spiritual resume, if you were to go through those six points that would have given him brownie points beyond belief from a Jewish perspective, he says all of that is worthless because I so want to gain Jesus and he is so valuable to me. Because Paul's ground for confidence is in Christ. And he contrasts his background in Judaism with his new life in Christ. And yet, in that, there's several things that we need to be able to learn as well. And that brings us, brings us to sub-point A underneath point number three. Sub-point A in your outline is this. Gaining Christ costs us everything. Gaining Christ costs us everything. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean all of our good works and all of our evil works. Everything that we would see as spiritual brownie points to bring us to God, we have to lay aside in order to be able to seek God and to gain him, as well as laying aside all of our sins. Because everything is worth it because we so want to gain Jesus. Paul is writing about God. He is like the pearl of great price that is mentioned in the Gospels. The people sold everything that they had because they so wanted to gain the pearl of great price, which was compared to God in his kingdom. Paul so wanted to gain Jesus that everything in his life was willing to be able to be in flex and bend because he wanted to give Jesus the right of way so that everything in his life would be able to yield to him instead of the other way around asking God to be able to yield to our preferences, our desires, and our schedules. And when it comes to our life and how this relates to us, again, we're not in a Jewish perspective. But could we say that we, like Paul, want to be able to let, lay down anything for the sake of Christ? I'm not saying that you abandon families or sell your house. I'm not saying those things. But when it comes to the highest priority in your life, is your highest priority Jesus? Is your motivation for holiness and for godly living Jesus, or is it to impress other people? Is your motivation for giving to missions, for living faithfully in obedience to God throughout the week, because we want to be able to serve Jesus, become like Jesus, and glorify Jesus, or because we want to please people by eye service? Richard Wurmbrand was a pastor in Romania that we have mentioned before in, in another sermon, but he was somebody who was imprisoned under the Iron Curtain under communism after World War II was over. And he was a man that was imprisoned for 14 years. He was kidnapped and taken to prison for that amount of time, and in that time he lost his career, he lost his family for a time, he lost his job, he lost uh, his ability to be able to read and write and even all the scriptures that he had memorized from being a pastor. And if you were to look at Paul or, or Richard Wurmbrand, and look at their lives and be able to say, how are they able to go through so much difficulty? What was their motivation? It wasn't just to be able to overcome. Their motivation was Jesus. They so wanted to be able to gain Jesus, to be close to Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus, that no matter what happened in their lives, it didn't matter because they so wanted to be able to gain Christ. And what that means for you and I is that you can be as good as Mother Teresa or you can be as wicked as the thief on the cross that was, next, that was next to Jesus when he was crucified. But whatever you think your background is, for any of us to gain Jesus, we have to lay down all of our works, whether they be good or evil, so that we might be able to gain Christ. We trade in all of our works 
to gain Jesus because we so want to gain him and he is worth it in our lives. That's what Paul is advocating for. Not only that, but all these things are not just kind of second supports, second grade supports for our lives. He says that they are rubbish, literally human dung. They are worthless in terms of our standing before God. The only reason that you and I can stand righteously before God one day is because of Jesus Christ. And it costs us everything to gain him. But in him, we gain eternal life, abundant life and all things, and he is worth it. And yet, Paul continues on, because then you might be thinking, okay, well, if I have to lay down all of my righteousness in order to gain Christ, where does that leave you? Neutral or with nothing? And that brings us to subpoint B underneath our third point. Subpoint B in this morning is this. Gaining Christ imparts his righteousness to us by faith. Gaining Christ imparts his righteousness to us by faith. There's a slide up on the screen, and I love this one because in a very basic way, if you were to explain this to a child or just simply to an adult, you'd say, what does salvation look like? Salvation looks like us putting our faith in Jesus, and when we do that, all of our sins go to him on the cross. They're paid for in full. They're not swept under the rug. They're not outdone by good deeds to cover them up. They are paid for in full, so there is nothing left on our bill to be paid before God. And not only that, we are not just left neutral before God, but God's righteousness is imparted to us by faith. When Paul writes about this, talking about Abraham, when he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness because of his faith. Faith is the thing that we respond to God in. And when we gain Jesus, he imparts his righteousness to us by faith. That's what he says in verse 9. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All these things are dependent on our righteousness before God. And yet again, our righteousness is not sufficient to be able to stand before God on our own works. What the Judaizers were doing, or when we say no to God and his righteousness, what we're doing is saying, you know what, God's grace and God's blood and Jesus' blood covering me from all sins sounds wonderful. But when it comes to judgment and standing before God, I'm going to run over here and say, you know what, I think I'm good enough. Examine me, God. Look at my heart. Look at my life. Am I good enough to be able to come into your presence? We say no to God's incredible gift for us in order to bolster our own pride and our standing before him. That's why it was so wrong to be able to trust in our own workspace righteousness instead of looking to Jesus. Again, what Paul said in Galatians 3, 5, 3 through 4, every person who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. When we stand before God, we're examined by his standard, not ours. I was talking to some of the guys at Battalion yesterday. When we stand before God, a lot of times we like to think, oh, it's based off of my standard. So if I'm not Hitler and I haven't killed anybody, I'm a pretty good person. But when we stand before God, it's not based off of our standard of righteousness because we're wicked people. We don't know what right and wrong is. It's skewed to benefit us. When we stand before God, it's based off of his law because if he is a holy and righteous and good God, only he is able to justly and righteously judge us before him. And lastly, our last point this morning, subpoint C under main point three, gaining Christ requires our emulation of him. Gaining Christ requires our emulation of him. Verse 10 says this, Paul writing, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I share all this with you because it's not when we come to faith in Jesus that we just say, okay, I'm forgiven of all my sins and I can just go and do whatever I want now. 
When Paul addresses that in Romans, he says, are we to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? When we come to faith in Jesus, God gives us a new heart and he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we no longer try to live for God to be perfect before him, but we live by God's Spirit to walk in obedience before him out of gratitude instead of obligation, out of joy instead of a job requirement because we so want to be able to gain Jesus and glorify him, not because we want to impress God or the people around us. And that's why Paul says all these things that we might know him in the power of his resurrection and yet share in his sufferings. When it comes to Jesus, we are people that associate with him. We are Christians. We are Christ followers. We associate with Christ. And if we look at Christ's life, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had a challenging life. We should expect the same. Not because we love suffering, but because this world has no ultimate hope. But in Jesus, we have hope beyond all measure in him. And Paul is saying that he so wants to be like Christ in every aspect that he wants to be united in him in suffering. Jesus said a similar thing. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Not only that, Paul says, I want to become like him in his death. Just like Jesus died for our sins, you and I die to sin so that we might no longer live in it. We're not going to be perfect this side of eternity, but what it does mean is that we are looking at our old way of life from, when we were before, from before we were Christians, and we're saying, I'm going to die to that, put that to death daily, and say, I'm going to choose to be able to live for God this day to the best of my ability for his glory and the edification of his people around me. And yet, he closes his argument by saying this, that by any means possible, attain the resurrection of the dead. Hoping in Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing, because it gives us abundant life in this world and eternal life in the world to come. It's not a religious crutch. It's not a philosophy that helps me get through the day. Believing in Jesus Christ is a relationship with the God of the universe. And because of that, I have hope and motivation and understanding for this world and eternal hope that cannot be taken away no matter the situation for the world to come. And Paul says, I'm going to cast everything aside so that I might gain Jesus have his righteousness, and become like him in everything that we do? Are we trying to do the same? Are we looking to be able to do things? Because at the end of this, you might say, well, then what's the point of good works? We do good works. We are in obedience to God because we want to be able to follow him in all that we do, because we want to become like Jesus, not because we just want to be good people. The focus and the center is Jesus. He's at the center of the cross. He's at the center of all things. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our motivation. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our reward. And so when it comes to things in our lives, is there a contrast between Jesus and something else in our life and something from maybe our old ways is pulling us away and we need to be able to focus on Jesus and not just suck it up and try harder? When it comes to our righteousness before God, are we trusting in how many times we come to church or how much we read our Bibles or is our daily hope for righteousness in God based on our standing in God's righteousness, or is it in a counterfeit hope of our own works? It's easy to slip into this way of thinking as a Christian, but it's rewarding to be able to, be able to trust in Christ all the more. And as we look to be able to gain Christ in our lives, are we able to say that we want to gain him and lay down everything because he is worth it? So that no matter where we are in life, whether it comes to anything in our life, if Jesus were to put his finger on anything in our life and say, this needs to go, we'd say, yes, Lord, because we so want to be with him and like him. 
And when it comes to our standing before righteousness, or when it comes to our standing in righteousness before God, do you self-deprecate for how good or bad you are? Or do you trust in Christ's righteousness that is accredited to you? Remember that slide from earlier. Jesus' righteousness is how God sees us, not based on our own works. And lastly, are we Christians that are living to be able to be like God in all that we say and do? We are Christ followers, not Christ associators only. We're not just hearers of the word, we are doers of the word. We are people that look to be able to live for God to the utmost in every situation of life because we want to glorify the one who died for us so that we might live for him. And at the center of it all, our confidence for everything in life is in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing in us. And that's not depressing, it's rewarding because he is far better than we could ever be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I pray that you would allow us to be able to look at our lives and to be able to see if we're able to be able to live for you and to be able to keep you as the center for confidence in our lives. Lord, would our motivation and would everything in our lives be focused on Jesus and not on the things of this world? Would it be focused on Jesus and not how good we want to appear to other people? Would it be focused on Jesus and not how great we think our life is? And would we become like you in everything that we do, Lord? God, when we surrender to you and we glorify you in everything that we do, Lord, it is rewarding to us even though it's challenging for a moment. And yet, Lord Jesus, when we look at anybody here who has a relationship with Christ, it is far better to choose you than anything else in this world. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that maybe has been trusting in their own workspace righteousness, they've been hoping in their own standing before God or how great or good they are, I pray, Lord, that you would be working in their heart, Lord, and that you would reveal your truth to them, Lord. And, and I just pray that you would be blessing us as we go out from this place, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. If any of that resonated with you, or if you have questions, I'll be at the back to be able to talk to you afterwards. Thank you.